everybody. As mentioned, I am John McCormick. I'm from Renovation Church. I am the leader of Renovation U at Renovation Church. That's our, <laughs> those that know, uh, that's our summer theology classes that we offer for our uh, folks for Renovation Church where we teach like how to study the Bible, what does it mean to be a Christian, lots of topics in theology, some survey classes through the Bible, lots of good stuff. So I lead that, that's my role, and sometimes I get to preach at Renovation and at a church plant. So I'm super honored to be here with you this morning and really excited to be here too. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. It's great to be here on such a special day. Now, have you ever told a fish story before. You know what fish story is? It's where someone takes something mundane or something at least somewhat interesting and then blows it way out of proportions, right? A fisherman goes and catches a fish and the fish starts this big when they tell someone they caught it. And then the next time it's this big. And the third time it's a great white that they caught in their little john boat. It just doesn't happen, but it blows out of proportions because they're so excited about it. And they just grow and grow and grow over time, especially when they're like telephoned across other people. It just keeps continuing to grow. Now, those that know me know I don't fish super often in my life. I enjoy it, but I don't go super often. But uh, the last time I went fishing, I had a pretty interesting experience. And so I'm going to share my fish story with you all this morning, and you can all decide if it's true or not. I went fishing, and I caught a fish that had another fish in its throat. Now, it's true, and I have proof. I will show you the proof. This is a picture of a smallmouth bass with a sunny caught in its throat that I happened to catch. And I named the little fish inside Jonah because it felt really appropriate. So that's Jonah and the big fish. So just for you this morning. Now, most fish stories are exaggerated, right? They're probably not true. They could be true, but most of the time they're probably not or at least really exaggerated. But what I want to look at today is what seems to be the mother of all fish stories in the Bible. We're going to be reading in Jonah today. If you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to pull it out and follow along. We're going through the whole book today. We're going to be here for about three hours, so buckle up. It's going to be amazing. But if you have a Bible, follow along. The words will be on the screen as well. But we're going to go through and hear the story of Jonah and hear his fish story today. Now, let me give you some context. Jonah lived a long time ago. He lived during the time of Jeroboam II, who was an evil king in the nation of Israel, and the time of Amaziah, who was a somewhat good king in the, in the nation of Judah. So we're talking like the 700s BC, long, long time ago. And we first hear about this guy named Jonah in the book of Second Kings in the Bible, in chapter 14, verse 25, where the author of that book records that Jonah is prophesying to the king that the Israel's borders, the nation of Israel, is going to expand. They're going to get larger. Because at that time, they had been shrunk a lot by the nations around them. So Jonah's saying, hey, your kingdom's going to grow. Now, Jonah must have at least been somewhat known at the time for him to be mentioned by the author of this book. If he was a nobody, they wouldn't have recorded it. But he was important, so they wrote it down. So we know he was a prophet. He had the opportunity to speak to people and share God's will and God's word to them, which is a huge honor, right? Being a prophet is a big deal. God talks to you, which is amazing. But it was also a really difficult job because many of the prophets were killed for speaking things that people didn't want to hear. They kept saying, come back to God, follow God, seek after God, and the people didn't want to hear that. And so they were, they were killed for that truth. Now, what I want to also do is tie in the story of Jonah into Palm Sunday. Pray for me. Here we go. So, on Palm Sunday, people are watching Jesus come into town on a donkey, on a colt, the, the, the baby of a donkey, and he's riding into town, and everybody is so excited. Like the kids just showed us. They're waving palm branches, they're praising, they're singing Hosanna in the highest, and they're knowing, based on the Old Testament, that this person coming in, Jesus, 
is probably the Messiah. Because all the Old Testament prophets talked about how the, the Messiah would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they're like, oh my gosh, the Messiah is here. And they're so excited because of that. Because in their minds, this was a conqueror. This was the freer coming from God to set them free from Roman oppression. They had been under Roman rule for a long time, and it had not gone well for them. And so they thought, here comes the Messiah. God is going to finally set us free. We'll come back to that in a little bit and talk about it a little bit more. So Jesus rides in. The people are excited. They're eager to follow him. They said, yes, Hosanna. We're so excited. But let's think about Jonah, because Jonah also ties into this, I think. Jonah is really excited to follow God, right? He gets to go in front of kings and give the truth that God has. That's a cool job. He's probably really excited. He's praising God. He's following God, just like the people on Palm Sunday at first. But what we're going to see this morning is as we go along, these expectations that Jonah has and that the people of Israel have aren't going to get met, and they're going to turn against God pretty quickly. The people that just five days before on Palm Sunday that were praising Jesus and praising God are going to crucify him. As we'll see in a moment, Jonah is going to run from God, even though just a moment before he had been following God gladly and and prophesying in God's name. But let's learn a little bit more about Jonah's story from the Bible today. So we're going to jump in. We're going to start right at Jonah 1, verse 1. And I just want you to see kind of the story of Jonah this morning. So this is what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So we see here, God says to Jonah, Hey Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah bolts, right? Without word of warning, without giving a reason why, he makes a run to Tarshish. Tarshish, most scholars think, is somewhere in mod- would have been somewhere in modern-day Spain. So we're talking a multi-week trip by boat from Israel up to Spain to go to Tarshish. And we'll talk about why Jonah runs in a little bit, but a quick, quick version is the Jews, the people of Israel, didn't get along with the Ninevites. Imagine the Jews are Vikings fans and the Ninevites are Packers fans. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. They did not did not get along at all. Now, let me summarize what happens next in the chapter. God sends this crazy storm on the water, right? The ship is threatening to break up under the strain. It's going down and it's falling apart, and the sailors panic, as, as you would expect. The sailors freak out and start throwing all their cargo off of the ship to try and lighten the load so they don't sink, to bring themselves above water. Now, meanwhile, Jonah is asleep below deck having a nice nap. Apparently, the rocking of the ship was just enough to put him to sleep, and so he's out cold underneath. And the crew figures out Judah, I'm sorry, Judah, Jonah is the reason that this storm is happening. And so they pick him up and they chuck him overboard. Jonah tells him to, he says, chuck me overboard, the storm will stop. And what's fascinating is they chuck him, the storm immediately stops. If you know storms, they don't just stop immediately, right? They take time to like slow down and then stop. The storm stops instantly. And these men, these sailors who have no idea who God is, Joppa was not in Israel. It was not, a, it was not an Israelite city. They don't know God. They immediately gave their lives to God. They stopped on the boat what they were doing and said, God, we're going to follow you. Even in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, God is still using him to save people. He's supposed to go to Nineveh and preach re- repentance to them, and he bails, and even though he's disobeying, he just accidentally saved a whole bunch of sailors on a ship. 
God used him in his disobedience. And it makes you think about your own life a little bit, doesn't it? Have, have you ever disobeyed God and seen him still do something through it? He doesn't need our obedience to accomplish his plan. He'll, he'll do what he wants to do. But it's a lot better for us, as we'll see in a minute, if we go along with what he wants us to do. Now, these men are above water, thanking God for saving them. Meanwhile, Jonah is below water, experiencing probably the fish story of a lifetime, right? So look at this, verse 17. This is what it says. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, at this point, I'm imagining Jonah is freaking out. He's inside of a fish, right? A gigantic fish. The Jews already didn't like water. They were afraid of water because they were afraid water was the gateway to hell, or Sheol as they called it. So they didn't like water, and then he gets eaten by a fish inside the water. So Jonah is panicking. And we have to imagine it doesn't smell very good inside the fish. If you've ever been inside of a fish, I haven't. It probably doesn't smell very good. There's no water. There's partly decaying food. Pinocchio is hanging out in the corner, and Jonah's just stuck there. And for three days and nights, he's sitting in these conditions, and then finally he starts to pray. Three whole days pass before Jonah thinks, hmm, maybe I should pray about it, which is a little odd. And he thanks God in chapter 2 for saving his life, since he would have drowned if the fish hadn't eaten him, and he even commits to following through on his vows. Now, the prophets must have made vows. We don't know a ton about it, but they must have made vows to God saying, hey, I'm going to serve you. When you tell me to go, I will go. When you tell me to speak, I will speak. And he disobeyed those vows by running, and now he's saying, I commit to them. I'm going to follow. He seems to have repented, and decided, I'm going to follow God's instructions again. Now, however, if you read this chapter, what you will see is not once does Jonah actually say he's sorry for what he did. He doesn't actually admit he screwed up. He just says, okay, thank you for saving me, and I'll go do what you want me to do. So it's not really repentance here. It's just, get me out of the fish, please. I don't want to be in the fish anymore. Now, this happens in verse 10 in chapter 2. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Now, for some reason, I imagine the fish doing like a cat yakking a furball thing where it's sort of like, and then out shoots Jonah onto dry land. You also have to imagine he probably smelled not great either, so it wasn't, wasn't great for him. Now, we'll pick up again with Jonah in chapter 3. Back on dry land, and God tells him again, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. So we'll pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 3. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city and proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, this is amazing. The people of Nineveh don't just ignore Jonah and go on with their normal lives, right? These people don't know God. They're wicked people. I don't know if they still do this in cities, but the people standing with, like, the end is nigh sign, they used to do that. People ignored those people. They don't listen to that, and so this Jonah guy should have been ignored. And yet, they don't respond at all like we would expect them to. They all begin to fast. And if you don't know fasting, it just means like refraining from eating for a time to pray and, and ask God to move. And they put on sackcloth, which would be like an itchy, uncomfortable, burlappy kind of material that they, people in that time wore to mourn, to say they were sorry. And it's not just like one group of people doing this. It's everybody, regardless of their status, from the least to the greatest. They take it so seriously, they make the animals fast. I'm not sure how they made the animals fast. It would have been a challenge, I'm sure. But they said, no, it's this serious. Every living thing is going to fast. Now, notice what the king responds with. So the king actually gives a response in verse 8 and 9 in that chapter. Let's see what he says. The king says, Let everyone call urgently on God. 
Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king doesn't say to everybody, we're going to do this and God won't destroy us. That's not what he says. He says, God may yet relent and have compassion. Even though this, he's a king, right? He's a king of a giant city. He has all of the authority. And yet he knows in the face of the mighty God, he is powerless. And even he has to put on sackcloth and beg God not to destroy them. They don't know if it'll work or not. And yet all the people repent. All the people turn from their evil ways. They take the warning extremely seriously. And without delay, they act. They could have chosen to keep doing what they were doing. That would have been the logical choice. But they beg for mercy from God. And what this creates for us is what I think is a really interesting contrast, right? We have Jonah, who runs, the people of Nineveh, who immediately repent, and then we have the people of Jerusalem, who turn against and kill Jesus. Jonah, who knows God and has served God in the past, is the one who immediately disobeys, like turns and bolts the moment God tells him to do something. The people of Israel in Jerusalem, they knew the signs of the Messiah. They knew that Jesus was the one, and they accept him with joy at first. And yet when Jesus doesn't behave the way they expect him to, when he doesn't conquer the way they expect him to, they turn on him and kill him. It's the people who have no idea who God is, who have no reason to believe at all that destruction is coming besides the one crazy guy with the sign saying the end is nigh, and they're the ones that obey. They're so convicted, they turn away from all their evil ways and repent. They're so fervent in their shift and seeking forgiveness that God actually relents and does not destroy them like he was going to. Now, if you've heard this story before, especially if you heard it when you were younger, you might think this is a story of redemption for Jonah. Or you might think that this is the end of the story right here. Yay, God relented. He saved Nineveh, huzzah, you know, hugs and kisses, happy ending. Unfortunately, that's not how it goes. We think, of, we think of this story of this guy screws up, he gets forgiven, and he goes on to serve God in powerful ways. Sometimes Christians paint Jonah as a timid hero who's just afraid of greatness, right? But the final chapter of Jonah, chapter 4, one that many people don't know anything about even, paints Jonah in a very different light. Our hero actually turns out to not be the hero at all. You might even say Jonah is actually the villain of the story. He's not the good guy. God is the hero. Jonah is not the good guy. Look at how Jonah responds when God relents and is gracious to Nineveh. This is right at the beginning of chapter 4, right in verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, meaning God relenting and not destroying. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Let me read that again. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Whoa, that's an unexpected response from Jonah. He would rather die than live because God forgave some people. That's crazy. Why, why would he respond so strongly? He, he, he ran away. It says he ran away in the beginning so that... That is an insane response to the situation. What, what makes him do that? 
This is where context is super, super important. One of the things I say in Renovation U is that context is king. You have to know the context to understand why people did the things they did. Jonah knew that this nation of Nineveh was very sinful. He knew they were wicked. They were super violent. He knew they deserved punishment. The Ninevites are not Jews, and the Jews were God's chosen people, and so he wouldn't expect God to have compassion. And he knows his Jewish history, and that in the past, God had had the Jews literally wipe out nations that were sinful, just destroy them completely, every living thing. And so in that context, it makes sense that Jonah would say, yeah, why would you have mercy on them? They're terrible people, terrible people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Jonah was justified, but his context, it makes a lot of sense that he would respond that way. Based on his worldview, punishment was really the only good course of action that God could take. Anything else would be wrong. They're not worthy of forgiveness. They're not worthy of a second chance. Interestingly enough, it's the context of the people of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and Good Friday that also informed their responses, right? On Palm Sunday, they're entering into the Passover season. The Passover season was the most important season of the year because it reminded them of the fact that the Israelites were saved when God passed over, Passover, passed over the people and didn't destroy them, but destroyed the Israelite, I'm sorry, the Egyptian children instead. They, they associated, okay, Passover is a time where God displays his power over, those in, over, over us. And they were currently under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so they probably already have parallels in their mind, right? Passover is coming, the Messiah is going to come, and it's going to deliver us from the Romans, just like at Passover, God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. Now, Jesus comes riding in on the donkey, the way the prophets had all said he was going to come. And so they see him and they go, this is it. This is the dude. We're free. Like, vengeance is at hand. We're going to be delivered from the Romans. So it makes perfect sense based on their context that they're worshiping him. They're so excited. They're eager. They're waving their palm branches. But they didn't know that Jesus was coming to give them a second chance, just like Jonah was giving a second chance to the Ninevites. Think about that. Adam and Eve, way back in the garden at the very beginning, they had the first chance to follow God, and they screwed it up. And so now we live in a broken world full of sin. We're all sinful because of it. But Jesus walked through the city of Jerusalem, just like Jonah walked through Nineveh, proclaiming what? Repent, believe in me, and be saved. Jonah walked through Nineveh saying, repent and be saved. Believe in God. It's the same thing. Bet you never thought that Jonah and Jesus were connected like that, but they are. It's fascinating. There's so many connections in the Bible. So many cool connections like that. And granted, Jesus goes willingly and gladly proclaiming the good news. Jonah doesn't. But either way, it's really cool to see those parallels. Now, what's interesting in this story is the people of Nineveh actually are not the only ones that get a second chance, right? Jonah and the Ninevites both get a second chance. Jonah actually gets three chances and screws all of them up. The Ninevites repent. They turn from their ways, right, when they hear Jonah's message. They repent and believe. They have no context, and they say, okay, I'm doing it, whatever you say. But when Jonah is in the fish, right, he's already screwed up once, right? He was supposed to just go to Nineveh, didn't do it, got eaten by the fish. He's in a fish. You would think the prophet of God, when he got swallowed by a fish, would go, oh yeah, maybe I should follow God. I've been doing it this far, why would I stop now? But he doesn't. Three days and three nights, and he kind of has a change of heart, sort of, like to get me out of the fish, get me out of this fish. And it's not really a change of heart at all. He's really just going through the motions that God tells him to do, and he's going to go walk through the city and say, hey, and probably not even like eager, like, repent, the end is nigh, 
follow God. Give, I mean, I'm sure he didn't put a lot into it. But it gets worse because the depth of Jonah's rage and his sense of self-importance actually gets bigger and bigger as we go along in the chapter. He sets up camp outside of Nineveh to watch and see what God will do. It's hot. The sun is beating down on him. He's not doing well, as nobody would be in that circumstance. And God is gracious to him again and causes a plant to grow up and give him shade. Now, Jonah didn't do anything to deserve that plant, quite the opposite, but God is still merciful to him. And Jonah is very grateful for the shade. The plant makes him happy, and then guess what? The plant dies overnight. Sprung up in a day, died overnight. And this is how Jonah responds. Jonah 4, 8 and 9. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Surprise, Jonah wants to die again. Here we are, second verse, same as the first. His plant that gave him comfort is gone, and once his personal comfort is gone, he's right back to being furious. He was happy for a minute, and now he's right back to being just as angry again. And this reveals the poison that had taken hold in Jonah's heart. His pride led him to believe that he knew what was right, he knew what was just, and that God doesn't know anything. His pride shuts his ears and shuts his heart and convinces him, it's my way or the highway, and if I don't get my way, I'd rather be dead. It's that intense of a response. But God isn't done yet, right? God has this brilliant response to Jonah that ends the book. And this is, God always gets the last word. It's so good. This is how it ends, Jonah 4.10. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should not I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. God shows Jonah that his grace and compassion are so much deeper than Jonah or even we can understand, far beyond it. Jonah flips out that a plant grew and died in a day and doesn't give a rip about 120,000 people that are about to die. He does not care. He says these people don't know their right hand from their left. It just means they don't know right from wrong. They literally have no idea how to appease God. They don't know how to do it right. And they're going to be wiped off the planet. And that's not enough for Jonah to have pity. It's not enough. Throughout this entire book, God is building his case against Jonah. Even with multiple interventions from God, Jonah doesn't get it. His heart is completely hardened. And the book ends with a question. It gives us a chance to answer this question that God has at the end against the backdrop of Jonah's example. Is it not worth saving these 120,000 people? Or do they not matter? Or the animals, do they not matter? Versus your little plant. And what's interesting is, God himself, 700 years later, will walk through the street, 700-ish years later, will walk through the streets of a city, not to save 120,000 people, but to save everybody. Every single person that ever lived and ever will live, he walks through that city on Palm Sunday saying, here I am, people, pay attention to me. And to him, it is worth it. He's going to his death. 
And he says, it's worth it. Jonah can't care about anything more than a plant. And God cares about every creature that ever lived. Every person that will live and has lived. That's the amazing thing on Palm Sunday. One human can walk through a city and maybe save 120,000. God can walk through a city and save everyone forever. It's unbelievable. Jonah's hard heart, his entire story acts as a warning for us today. This book is a cautionary tale. It's not the story of a hero. The book of Jonah tells us, don't run from God. Do not do it. Don't expect God to move in the way you want him to because he's not on your agenda. It says, don't just go through the motions following God. Follow God with a right heart that wants to seek after him. Jonah's life is a scary foreshadowing of what can happen to us if we resist God. Jonah is us, friends. It's easy for us to look back at Jonah with hindsight and go, stupid Jonah, why did you do that? Shake our heads, tisk tisk. Why'd you do that? But the exact same temptations exist for us today. We can fall into the same traps that Jonah did. We need to avoid bringing our expectations to God and how he should move when we serve him. We, when we obey with the expectation that he's going to move the way we want him to, we're going to build up bitterness and anger in our hearts because he probably won't. That's not the way God operates. Jonah told God, right? I knew you'd be merciful on the Ninevites, and I ran away to stop you, as if he could stop God, right? Before his story even starts, Jonah has already decided the Ninevites are not worth saving. doesn't matter what God thinks. They're not worth saving. And when God's plan differs from Jonah's, he's so bitter and angry, he would rather die than see God have mercy on these people. That's messed up. And that can happen to us. We're not immune, right? Here's a couple of examples for you how this can happen in our own life on a smaller scale. Let's say God calls you to go on a mission trip. He says, I want you to go on a mission trip and proclaim the good news to people. You'll probably form expectations of what's going to happen. God's going to save X amount of people. I'm going to give my testimony. I'm going to preach. We're going to build a house. Whatever it might be, this is what's going to happen. What happens when that doesn't happen? What happens when God doesn't move the way you want to? What happens if you're taken way outside your comfort zone? I went on a missions trip uh, to Rwanda, and one of our guys got a kidney stone. And I sat in the hospital with him all day, listening to him moan and cry for hours because he was in so much agony. I thought I was going to be out on the mission field reaching people for Christ, and I'm sitting in a hospital for a whole day. But you know what? God moved. He still moved. Even though it wasn't my expectation, he still moved. And I was able to say, okay, God, this is what you want. Great. I'll follow you. I will follow you. I will do it. And amazing things came out of that. But if I had sat in that moment in the hospital going, oh God, why did you do this? Why am I here? I hate this. This It's awful. It's so miserable. Why don't you just fix it, God? I mean, I had those thoughts, but I didn't sit in those thoughts. I didn't dwell on those thoughts. If I had, I would have been bitter and angry just like Jonah. It would have ruined the rest of the trip for me. But instead I was able to say, okay, God, you're going to move the way you want to. And that day that I didn't go, one of my friends got to go preach, and he reached a bunch of people for Christ, and he wouldn't have had the chance to go otherwise. And so God had a plan. God knew what he was doing. Another way this can happen in our lives is if you feel like, I should go tell this person about Jesus, be it a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, you just feel like God's saying, hey, I need to tell this person about Jesus. And you go and tell that person, and you say, they're going to believe, it's going to be great, or at least they're open to a conversation, and they shut you down, and they shout at you, and they say, get out, and they're angry at you. And we turn to God and say, why did you have me do that? 
now that friend don't talk to me anymore and that relationship is ruined, what, what gives, God? And if we hold on to those expectations of it's going to go this certain way, we turn into Jonah. We'll respond just like he does. We'll get angry and say, God, things are not going right. But, but who's right? Our right, not God's right. Right? <clears throat> His call will seem wrong to us because it doesn't match our expectations. And we have to be on guard because that kind of resistance to God naturally builds up over time if you're not actively working against it. Friends, we are all sinners. And our inherent sinfulness wants us to run from God every minute of every day of our entire lives. It is telling you, run, run, run. That's what it does. And we have to work against it every single day by letting go of what we think should happen, the way we think things should go, and saying, God, I will follow what you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go. Don't hold on to the bitterness. Because if you hold on, you will walk away from God. It is a poison. It is a cancer inside of you. And it will eat you alive from the inside. And eventually you will walk away from God. Don't resist him. He knows best. God will call you to things in your life you probably don't want to do and you probably don't agree with. What matters is how you respond to it. Don't run from God because there is a price to pay. It may not be a fish, but it may be something bad. You don't know. Don't run from him. And when you do respond to God, don't respond like Jonah does in the fish. Rita says, okay, I'll go to Nineveh to get me out of the fish, to keep me alive, but his heart isn't in it. He doesn't really want to go. He doesn't care about the Ninevites. And I think as American Christians, we fall into this trap really quickly of just following God for fill-in-the-blank reason. Not because God wants us to, but because of some other reason. We might decide it'll improve our circumstances. It'll make us a better person, improve our lives. It'll make us happier, or God will give us that fill-in-the-blank. How many times do people bargain with God and just say, God, I'll do this if you'll give me that? That's a very American mentality. That's what we do. We cannot do that as Christians, though. That is not what God calls us to. We must follow him because we're excited about what he's doing. We're excited about him. Because if we don't, time is going to reveal where your heart is at. Time will tell, as the old adage goes. Time told for Jonah, right? Jonah was not happy. Jonah was not good in the end. The poison, the toxicity in his heart is what leaked out. And what did it reveal? a hateful man that would rather die than see God be merciful to his enemies. There's a reason Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming, love your enemies. Why? Jonah is why. Jesus was saying, don't be a Jonah. Be like me. Love your enemies. Walk into the face of the unknown, into the face of uncertainty, into the face of something that might be uncomfortable to save people. That's the whole reason Palm Sunday is the great joy that it is. It's Christ finally saying, look, I'm here. This is the way. Follow me. And the people of Israel did not want to hear it. They did not hear what he had, want to hear what he had to say. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted a freer. And instead they got a servant who gave himself up, who preached peace and love. And they turned into Jonah. They said, this isn't what I want. This isn't right. This isn't just. Justice is freedom. And Jesus said, yeah, it is. Freedom from sin, not freedom from the Romans. Freedom from hell, not freedom from the Romans. And they missed the boat because the bitterness and the anger in their heart had taken over. 
And I want to tell you this morning, choose to follow God gladly and know that his way is always better. Always. We can still see God move when we disobey. God can still move if we begrudgingly obey. But I can tell you from experience, it is a million times better to follow him and do so with a glad heart, with a heart that is in line with his. You'll be happier, and you'll get to see him do even more. Even more. So if you're running from God in your life right now, or if you're just obeying him to benefit yourself, I beg of you, please stop. Stop. Stop for a minute and just think, why do I do the things I do every day? Why do I show up here every week? What am I doing here? Ask yourself that question. The answer might be because you love God and you're following him. That's great. That's amazing. I'm so glad. But it might be you're just going through the motions. And that just happens to us. We fall into that rut. It's just the nature of being human. But today say, what am I really doing here? Recommit yourself to saying, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to submit to him and I'm going to follow him where he leads. I'm not going to be a Jonah. Resistance to God, selfish motives motives will lead us back down Jonah's path, which is far worse. But intentional, humble obedience will allow you to experience God's grace and mercy and allow allow you to see him move in you and through you in ways you never thought were possible. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you came. I thank you for Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. I thank you that you gave us examples like Jonah to help us know what not to do, to show us the dangers and the pitfalls of this life that we have and the dangers of sin and sinfulness in our lives. I just ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would speak truth into us. Lord, if we've been going through the motions, that you would stop us, have us turn around and walk towards you again that you would fill us with a joy, with an excitement for who you are and what you're doing, and a passion to share that good news with everyone around us. Lord, we don't want to save 120,000. We want to save billions, and it only happens if we're walking towards you and expecting you to move. So Lord, we just ask that you would move in our hearts, that you would change us, and Lord, that in all things that you would be glorified in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.